0: Hello and welcome to The Activist Podcast brought to you by Vegan FTA, Vegan for the Animals. I'm your host Gareth Skirr and I'll also be joined by my wonderful co-host and wife Jackie Norman. In this episode we have the insightful Bob Isaacson. Bob is the president and co-founder of Buddhist animal rights organization Dharma Voices for Animals. In this interview Bob shares with us how his organization are working with Buddhist communities across Asia to help them understand the teaching of the Buddha by not excluding animals from the concept of ahimsa, to do no harm. We hope you learn as much as we did from this episode and be sure to check our social media pages at VeganFTA FTA on Instagram, Facebook and YouTube, where you can also find the series in video format.
1: Thank you so much for joining us today, Bob. For all our, all our viewers out and around the world, can you tell us a little bit about who you are and what you do?
2: Yeah, so I live here in uh, San Diego County, California, just southern Illinois, not far from the Mexican border. And I I had a uh, long and very rewarding career in uh, human rights, civil rights uh, defense. So this is what I did. I was an attorney uh, for many years, uh, mostly in Chicago, but also out here in San Diego. And my specialty was defending people against the death penalty. Death penalty is used a lot in the United States, and it was used a lot in Chicago and and also in California. So that's that's what I did for a number of years. I started out, of course, on smaller cases, but for a good 20 years, I was uh, representing people either on death row or in the trial courts in front of juries in Chicago and San Diego. And then I, I came to uh, Buddhist meditation and Buddhism, actually when I moved out here to San Diego. And I decided to kind of shift uh, away from from law. And I I went on a lot of meditation retreats. Uh, Started out weekend and a week, 10 days, and I moved on to retreats a month or longer. So I've done, if you put them all together, three to four years on silent meditation, Buddhist meditation retreats. I work with some of the Top teachers, some Asian teachers, and some Western teachers taught in Asia. Um, and then maybe about, um, so a while ago, it's almost 20 years ago. So I'd, heard, I'd already been practicing uh, Buddhism or practicing the Dharma for a number of years. And I always assumed that Buddhists were at least vegetarian. Uh, And then one day here in California, there was a really well-known Western uh, Dharma teacher. So Dharma is the teachings of the Buddha. A Western Dharma teacher who was uh, staying uh, with us here in San Diego County because he was giving teachings uh, in San Diego. We went out to buy some lunch. It was my responsibility to to buy lunch for him that he would eat during one of his two-day performances. And so we went to uh, a local uh, food store and there were salads. He wanted a salad. So I picked the one it was a salad with grilled veggies and he picked the one with grilled chicken. And I said to him, that one has chicken thinking he'd say, Oh, they put a packet. He said, I know. <laughs> and that's where everything changed for me. I mean, it was amazing that I didn't know this. And I, mean, I'd, you know, read the teachings, I was practicing. The centers where I was practicing were all vegetarian. They weren't vegan, but you could still get vegan food. And I I couldn't believe it. And I started looking around more carefully, and I I found that many, if not most, of the uh, teachers, the Western teachers, uh, were not vegetarian, let alone vegan. Uh, A number of years after that, so maybe about, well, 10 years ago, Almost 10 years ago, I was uh, talking to some friends, uh, Patty, Kim, David, and myself. Uh, we were uh, four vegans in the Buddhist community here in California, and we decided we needed to start an organization. Because in between the time that I found out that, that a lot of these Western teachers were not um, reading animals, and when we decided to start an organization, I spent a lot of time talking to teachers one-on-one. Uh, saying, could we have a conversation about this? And i just ask questions. And for most of them, you know, it was, it was okay. We could talk about it. I don't know that I persuaded anyone. Uh, and then about two or three of them were actually really ticked off that I was uh, talking to them about this. It's not something they were comfortable talking about. And then that led to my understanding that we needed an organization. So that was the birth of Dharma Voices for Animals in 2011. So I'm I'm also a lay Buddhist teacher, a lay Dharma teacher. I've been doing that for 12 or 13 years, practicing for 25 years. About halfway through, I've been trained at the largest uh, Buddhist center in, uh, in in the Western world, a place called Spirit Rock in Northern California. So that's where my my main teacher is, and the teachers I've been working with. Uh, so that's uh, that's how we got to DVA, and we've been growing ever since. We thought actually it would be a small uh, organization thought we'd be in California there's a big big center out here 50,000 people come every year and then uh not long into it I realized that we could save so many more animals so we went to Asia where almost 99% of the Buddhists in the world live so that that's how that's how DVA began
0: oh wow
3: it's fantastic and um you know like to say it's we always think that um, veganism and Buddhism must go hand in hand because I found that years ago when I very first uh, became interested in Buddhism and um, I wanted to go on retreats, but I was, I was a solo mom. I was, you know, raising two two children and I got in touch with the center and I said, Oh, you know, well, I, I really want to do these retreats, but I, I can't, I can't become a Buddhist. And they said, well, oh, that's, that's fine. You know, all you need to do to, to live, um, like a Buddhist, is basically be kind to everything. Just be kind to everything. And I thought, well, that's fine. I can do that. I can be kind to everything. And I automatically thought that must mean being vegan. Um And it's so wonderful to have you on here today because one of the questions that we see all the time in vegan groups is why isn't the Dalai Lama vegan? So, you know, it's, it's just so wonderful what you're doing. Um, I mean, you've been fighting for for all sentient beings like, you know, human and and, uh, non-human now for for years. What was it? You obviously made a connection between not harming anything um, a lot more than other um, Dharma practitioners. So for you, it must have come quite a long time ago. What was it that led you to become vegan?
2: Yeah, so I was vegetarian for for quite a while and never, you know, just turned away from the reality of, uh, you know, what happens when one drinks milk and what happens to the cows and the calves and also eggs. Um, And I started thinking about it uh, a couple years. I switched to vegan uh, 2004, so 16 years ago. Uh, And... It was really, you know what it was, it was actually an interesting story. I was at a uh, long retreat in uh, Massachusetts on the East coast of the U.S. And someone was on the same retreat. It was, I, I spent six weeks on the retreat and he spent three months. You could either do full three months or six weeks. And I happened to sit next to him on the way, on the um, a shuttle, on the way from the center to the airport. It's like a 90 minute drive to the Boston airport. And so he had uh, captive audience, and he was asking me questions like you know what about the cows? what about the chickens and I, I had like nowhere else to go and by the time I arrived at the Boston airport, that was it i mean I knew I was I had to make a shift, and that, that was it, and so I haven't looked back since and i re, I realized that my activism has really picked up uh, a bit like two or three notches uh, since since I made that uh, that move um, but, You know at DBA, what we're doing we're trying to be um diverse in opinion also, like you know, some of the people who help us out are vegetarian and they're not quite there. And I just try to remind myself, this is my path also. And so, and, and then we have some people that are just kind of like 50% of the time they're involved. Not in our leadership. Our leadership is almost hundred percent, 99% vegan, but we want, you know, we want to be open. Otherwise we're not going to persuade, persuade anyone, but you know, it's, uh, I'm very happy and uh, my wife is so much better. Uh, since I became vegan 16 years ago.
1: That's absolutely brilliant. I love that. And um, especially in this uh, current world, you know, we're we're trying to advocate for more uh, communal sort of transport, taking the bus. Another great reason to take the bus, isn't (laughs) it?
3: You never know who you might meet.
1: (laughs) But um, what was it that actually drew you to um, Buddhism and practicing the Dharma in the first place?
2: What was it like to get into it? Yeah, yeah. So it was a big shift. I didn't really think much about spiritual uh, issues and concerns for a good part of my life. And then I I just felt like something was missing. You know, I did. I had a lot of success as a death penalty lawyer, and although the death penalty in Illinois uh, wasn't uh, abolished until after I moved out here to California. Um, I planted a lot of the seeds. I was the death penalty coordinator in the public defender office. So crossing my desk was 70% of the death penalty cases in Illinois. When I think then it was the third largest state in the country. And uh, we're talking about like hundreds of cases. So we had 165 people on death row when the death penalty was abolished and another 35 people. Um, it was actually, it was a, it was a, the current death penalty, the death penalty that time was abolished, and then another 30 people uh, wound up on death row before finally you only decided to throw it out. So a lot of the, the things, a lot of the, um, the systemic issues I put in there uh, in different cases uh, wound up, you know, it wound up really helping out. But, of course, so many people, literally dozens of people had a huge uh, impact on the death penalty. So all this stuff, you know, good stuff was going on, but something was missing in my life. And I read a a book about Buddhism by a Tibetan Buddhist and got interested, but it wasn't until I came out here uh, uh, almost 26 years ago that I started to practice. There weren't any centers. had I was looking for uh, overnight a place to go for retreats. And there weren't any. Spirit Rock hadn't started yet. Uh, hadn't opened its um, residential retreat center. It opened in '98. So I would go. I would be teaching death penalty up in Northern California, and I would drive to the retreat center, listen to a talk by one of the better known teachers up there, and just uh I don't know, it's it's a reason to um, to be here. You know, you, you you really see what what's important and what's not. Um, that's about really all I can say right now, except it's been prof- profound, you know, to really get into the Dharma. And then also later on to see the connection between that and and the suffering of animals, which is obvious. But yet one has to see it and to feel it. Feeling it is the compassion that comes up through the practice. You know, it doesn't you have to be a Buddhist to feel compassion, but it's encouraged in the practice. So it all kind of all came together. Human rights, Buddhism, DVA.
3: No, it's a brilliant transition, and um, yeah, it's. I, I totally get the whole. Overall, you know, everything is just so complementary. Everything just goes hand in hand, or at least, you know, that's that's what we we feel as well. You know, we've also discovered. Um, I mean, for you, you know, becoming part of this this what is a, a global, massive spiritual movement um, with with Buddhism. I mean, you could have when you found out that you know being vegan and, and not eating animals wasn't actually you know an automatic part of of living this way I mean you could have simply sort of fallen in line with what your teachers and other practitioners said and did but um instead you you chose to speak out um against that choice you know their choice to eat animals and you know we were saying you know we can't imagine a heated argument among Buddhists but what was it like you know speaking out how how difficult was it challenging um the actions of others in in that faith
2: yeah, well, thanks for the question. Uh, it, it, it wasn't um, it wasn't easy, as you're saying, and it wasn't not so much that I felt uncomfortable talking about it, although sometimes I did. I have another story to share in just a moment, um, but it was mostly that there weren't any places you could talk about it. So I would go to these retreats. I'd arrive, you know, mid-afternoon. The retreat would start after dinner. And people would be registering and getting in their room and everything. And then we'd have a dinner and then the retreat would start. The retreats are silent. So when you talk about it, then you break silence. And then sometimes I'd start talking about it, but people didn't really want want me to. Really need to talk not to the individual practitioners, but to the teachers. So uh, as I spent more time on retreats and as I started teaching uh, Dharma myself, I got got to know better some of the better-known Western teachers, and that's when I had conversations. I had one one teacher, a uh, very famous uh, teacher, who was written about in one of the books, a really wonderful book about Buddhism and, and animal rights and all, and in the middle of the retreat, I just decided I'm going to do it. So I had an extra copy of this book. It was actually Norm Phelps' book, um, uh, Buddhism and Animal Ethics, called The Great Compassion. Norm was a good friend and actually one of my mentors uh, died about five years ago. And I gave this teacher the book because Norm was talking about him. And I I said, here's the gift from me to, to you. And I told him just a little bit about it. And he said, oh, he talked about me. I hope, said the teacher, I hope he said good things about me. And then I said, you know, the book is written from the point of view of the animals. And he said, oh, (laughs)
0: I oh, know. <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, I mean, these are the way the conversations went for, for all this time. And so now we don't have so many direct conversations with teachers, but instead, what we've done is we built up a, a network of Dharma teachers around the world, most of them being monastics. So, a lay teacher, I'm a lay teacher, there's lots of lay teachers in the U.S. Is kind of unknown or unheard of in Asia. There are so many monastics, they don't need to go to the second line, to the, to the lay teachers. So in, in Asia, we have no connections with lay teachers. I'm not sure there are any, maybe in some countries, I haven't heard about any. It's always with monastics. And we work closely with monastics. And in the US, it's both monastics and, and lay teachers. Um, so this is this is the conne- the connection. And for a lot of people, it is difficult to talk. Uh, and I want I want to plug our Facebook page now. So we just started a series there, where we um, are uh, putting out the most important questions that we've heard through the years. Was the Buddha vegetarian? Uh, Do you have to be vegetarian to be a vegetarian slash vegan? We use the word vegetarian because it brings more people into the conversation. And then our third one is, is vegetarian enough, vegetarianism enough? Uh, That'll be probably in a couple weeks. So we just started posting on that. We're trying to encourage a lot of uh, back and forth on this. And then we're going to have some uh, classes, some online classes. Classes in regard to this and hope we can stimulate uh, discussion uh, about this
1: That's brilliant. We'll have to uh, get and link that in the Mm -hmm. description of this video so people can go check it out because um, Yeah, I'll be very interested in seeing that discussion myself Mm -hmm. You mentioned earlier how um, you had a two or three sort of um, Teachers who sort of uh, I guess were were quite angry that you raised these points Um, Did you uh, find any any, any interesting um, ways they try to justify eating animals?
2: Yeah. yeah. You know, I actually have an article. And thanks for asking that question, too. Uh, the article is written from that point of view. What Western Dharma teachers, and I think it also applies to some extent to uh, Asian uh, Dharma teachers, who would all be monastic, um, th- their most common uh, reasons for not being uh uh, veg vegan. So the first is uh, I didn't kill the animal myself, so no problem. Uh, and that's uh, taking taking out of context uh, one one of the teachings of the Buddha. So the, the article, uh, if you could actually see more about, but I'm of course answering your question after I tell you this, is uh, was published in uh, Lion's Roar, which used to be the Shambhala Sun. And it's, 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 you can, you can still see it online and it's linked um, uh, in our website. It's on the homepage there. You can see it. It was published about a year ago. They actually contacted uh, me to see if we, if DVA wanted to do an article. Uh, so it's, you know, it, it's, so that starts from the teachings of of, of of the Buddha in the, in the Pali Canon. I'm, I'm trying to get, not get too technical here for readers that or listeners and viewers at may not um, have so much interest in, in the Dharma. Just a couple of, of things, just to set the stage. There's, two, there's basically two, uh, and you guys know this, there's two uh, uh, schools of Buddhism, Mahayana and Theravada. So Mahayana is the largest by far, and it inc- uh, includes countries of China. So right there you're talking about most of the Buddhists in the world, and also Korea, Japan, uh, Malaysia, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, or some of the some of the major oh, and Vietnam of course, some of the major uh, Buddhist countries they're Mahayana. In the Mahayana uh, scriptures or sutras, it is one hundred percent clear. There's no doubt at all. It is said explicitly again and again and again. The Buddha was vegetarian, and he expected his followers to be. And he would say things like, uh, if there were no um, uh, eater of flesh, there would be no destroyer of life. Okay. It's not quite as clear in Theravada and Buddhism. So I mean, no Mahayana at all. The Mahayana monks in uh, China, the Chinese, actually ethnic Chinese, Singapore, Malaysia, in the US, in China, in Taiwan, they're all, and, and Vietnam are all vegetarian. Um, in, who knows what a few of them might do when they when they when they're not at the, at the temple? But they're all the temples serve vegetarian food, and it's almost 100% vegan because there's very little dairy and eggs in most uh, Asian cultures. You're talking 98, 99% vegan. Uh, it's really you know it's it's very close to 100% compassionate diet. Now, Tirabadin is three countries, So one we're working in. Uh, uh, a, quite a bit, Sri Lanka, we have a big project there. Also Thailand and Myanmar uh, used to be called Burma. So, and we just opened a project in in Thailand. We, we are just, it's it's really exciting. Hopefully I can tell you a bit more about it later if you're interested. Uh, so in these three countries, the, the Buddha said to his followers that when on alms round with a begging bowl and maybe 1% of the monks in the world are, uh, uh, eat off of elms. So there's a few places in the U.S. and there are places in Thailand. If you go out into the forest and places in Myanmar, but most of the monks live close to the city, and most of them are, are the food is prepared by cooks, or it's brought in as, as a dhana, as a gift, generosity by the followers. So the time of the Buddha, they, the way they ate all the time was on alms rounds. They'd have a begging bowl, looks like, a, I just had it here, I don't have it anymore, like a, a meditation bowl that you're in. And he said, if you're on alms rounds, so that was all the monks back then, and very small percentage now, then if if you know something to be meat or animal flesh, uh, you can eat the meat if the, flesh, if the animal was not killed for you. But if you j- even suspect it might have been killed for you, you can't eat it. So what's the point of that? The point of that is he doesn't want any more animals to be killed. If the animal wasn't killed for you, if somebody is eating some and they share morsels with you, then no additional animal would die. This is really, really important. So this has been complete this tiny exception, it has no application at all to, to lay people. It has no application at all to monks who are not on alms rounds, or nuns, of course, monastics in general, women and men. It has no application if they're not on alms rounds. But yet it has turned into I can eat whatever I want, as long as I don't kill the animal myself. Also, the Buddha, another teaching says, if you, um, you should not kill or cause to be killed, that's the, the Dhammapada for those who are interested. It's on our website. So, yeah, you know, that's, you know, when we're, we're eating food, somebody's going to be killing an animal for us we're eating, when we're eating animal flesh. So, so that, I mean that, that's basically a summary. It's in, in the article. The article's called "Friends, Not Food," um, and it just it summarizes Buddhist teachings. And I've been looking at this now for about 20 years and studying all the sutras. There is this. That's pretty much a um, a summary of what of what's there. And you can read more about it. And we have we have a film that talks about this directly. It was produced by Keegan Kuhn. You probably know Kaos Conspiracy and What the Health, et cetera. And, uh, and Keegan's work with Leonardo DiCaprio, co-producing those two films. So he did, DiCaprio was not involved in our film, but Keegan was, he, he produced it. And it's called Animals and the Buddha. It's on YouTube. We've had about 140,000 views, but you know, people are showing it in temples around the world. So I'm sure over a million people have seen it. And it's with a lot of the top Buddhist leaders in the world Uh, talking about about this issue and a really important part is was the animal killed for you well if you go into a store (laughs) and you buy buy a chicken well maybe not get chicken but the next one is killed for you i mean who else is it killed for it's not it's not killed for the three of us Mm because we're not eating them yeah
1: well thank you so much for that summary yeah
3: yeah i think um with the I don't know if this is true, but certainly um, what I've heard um, in regard to say the Dalai Lama, which is, you know, like I said, the the main one that people question, why is the Dalai Lama not vegan for him? um, I think I've heard him say that it, it goes back to these offerings, you know, when, when he does his rounds in, in a, in a place where, for example, maybe people are very poor or whatever, it's a big thing for them to give an offering, to give something to, to, to the, you know, his holiness. And so, he can't be seen to refuse that. Is that right? Have I got that kind of thinking right?
2: Yeah. So, uh, you know, I would say, um, no, my, my friend Norm Phelps actually had three audiences with the Dalai Lama to discuss this. I mean, my, my reading of this is, um, first of all, if if someone brings you, brings you food, it's not true. It's polite to accept what's offered, but that, if that involves more, killings of animals is what the Buddha intended. I would say that quite respectfully to a great person like the, like the Dalai Lama, but he's, he's really co- coming around. You're right. He's not, he's, he's not, he's not vegan, uh, but he is a, a large a percent of the time. And even his message has changed. And the Karmapa Lama, who's really, really well known. He has millions of followers uh, is uh, 100% vegetarian. I don't know about, about vegan or not. And it's all on ethical compassion grounds and his understanding of the teachings of the Buddha.
1: So another thing I want, I'd like to add to that was um, I really loved your summary of that whole practice. And I think it's something that's relevant to all of our viewers, regardless of what faith they follow. Because uh, even for me as a child, I was brought up with a Christian primary school and the christian teachings that i was taught was somebody's version of that one and before them was somebody else's version i think it goes for most religions and different teachings is that it's always an interpretation and so you can have a a core principle which is misinterpreted as such a state and as jackie was saying with um the dalai lama and stuff like that i'd always i guess justified to myself as well um when i'd seen um When I've seen people uh, like having a go at, um, say, on social media, where they they get all riled up and they're having a a go about Buddhists and not uh, being fully vegan, you know, I always thought it was just the arms around thing and didn't understand that fully. So, yeah, thank you so much for filling us more in on that because now I feel I can truly understand it and make my own judgments about it.
0: Stop the podcast. We'd like to take a moment to give a shout-out to one of our partners, Fever's fevers is a global leadership community and content hub for vegan plant-based and plant-powered women committed to lifting each other up led by vegan business media's dynamic katrina fox fevers educates and inspires through online networking masterclasses e-courses meetups and much much more head on over to veganwomensleadershipnetwork.com to learn more now back to the podcast
2: Yeah, and just if I could just add one little point, yeah, um, and that is the the reason why the Buddha allowed uh, monks to eat uh, animal flesh, if they don't even suspect, and that's a really low bar. If you just have a hunch, a hunch that the animal was killed for you, maybe a goat slaughtered in the back, maybe two goats instead of one because the monks are coming over. You think that's possible? You cannot eat that. Can't, it can't. could be any clearer. It's called the Jivaka Sutta in the Pali Canon, so it's for Theravadin Buddhists. But at Mahayana, a sutra is all over the place. The Buddha's vegetarian, so it's 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 a challenge to try to, to try to try to justify to justify that. And and we, who knows the reason? But it seems pretty obvious. The Buddha didn't say this, but pretty obvious that it's a um, a, a balance. Between um, the um, symbiotic relationship between monastics on the one hand and the lay community on the other, he wanted the monastics to be teaching the Dharma to the lay community, and the lay community to be supporting by their dhana, by their contributions—food, medicine in those days, shelter when needed—and so the way, how do you how do you how do you balance that? And this is the balance that he struck. It seems. Absolutely obvious. This is what happened. But the balance depends on not killing more animals. That's the whole reason for this. So, so if you're out there, you know, it, it, it's it's used, it's very widespread. This, uh, this um, uh, exception, let's say, or this justification for eating animals. And then if I could just mention quickly, another one is uh, that vegetarianism, veganism has nothing to do with the Dharma. So to that I say, I mean when you're biting into, chewing and swallowing animal flesh or other animal products, it, you are intimately involved in that process. And there are lots of, without going into more details on this, it's all in the article. The, the wise livelihood, the, one of the components of uh, the Eightfold Path, uh, is you, you can you can be. You're not supposed to raise animals for slaughter, even though you're not actually killing the animal. So the Buddha didn't draw the line at actually killing the animal. He drew the line in being part of the process. And certainly if you're eating animals, you're creating a market for animals, and you're biting into, chewing, and swallowing their bodies, you are involved in the process. So it seems pretty, pretty clear that's not compassion. I wouldn't want anybody eating meat.
3: Mm-hmm. Absolutely and it makes perfect sense. And also um like you say it's very easy to to justify, you know, which is what what so many have been doing um finding ways to kind of skew those those facts and those those teachings and um and and slacken them a bit. And it makes you wonder, you know, with the whole hierarchy for want of a better word you know that information trickling down when when you know the monastics and the and the uh the lay people are going around you know why can't they just say to these people it's easy for us to say i guess from a vegan point of view but you know why don't they just say to to the people that the communities well no we we don't accept this or we don't eat this you know wouldn't it be easier to just pass those teachings down but you know it's yeah
2: <laughs> yeah so that, I mean this is it this is exactly what we're trying to do we're trying to connect with the with uh with important respected teachers so for example and we have something called our advisory council and we have 10 people on it now uh what we have distinguished people one of them is uh Jetsunma Tenzin Palmo who's this uh, amazing nun. Uh, she's English originally, and she spent 12 years in a cave in the uh, upper um, Upper Himalayas uh, right at the Tibetan border. And she's now the abbess of a, a large monastery, mostly Tibetan refugees, all nuns, of course. And uh, and she, she's on her advisory council. So when she comes to the U.S., I connect with her. We have some uh, interviews, some uh, uh, snippets from our video, from my video interview uh, on her Facebook page, and we talk about. She, she connects me with other uh, compassionate nuns around the world, including one in uh, in, in Thailand. Uh, the Venerable Dominanda is, is her name. She was uh, mentioned by B, BBC as one of the top most one of the 100 most influential women in the world. So I had a, I had a chance. She opened the door. Uh, Tenzin Palmo did to me meeting uh, this uh, wonderful uh, Thai uh, nun, uh, and and she's helping us in, in Thailand. So this is what we're trying to do. Uh, the, uh, the head of our project, uh, the director of our project in Vietnam, the venerable Thich Thanh Huan, is um, one of several monks in, in his country Vietnam, that sets the agenda for the Buddhism in the country. There's about 60 million Buddhists there. He heads our project. So this is the idea, to gain the confidence and the trust, which takes time, of world Buddhist leaders in in different countries and different cultures. It's different. It's really different. Buddhism is different in each culture, not surprisingly. And, and, and to do that, and then for them to be examples and to talk about it, and then we introduce them to other people. We provide materials that they can work with and encouragement to do this. And so this is this is the um, uh, the strategic plan for uh, for VBA, so that it's more difficult for for people not to talk about this. We want we want people to talk about, talk about it. If you if you if you if you're, if you're a compassionate person take a look at this, not by beating them over the head, that's not going to work, but by saying, have you thought about this? What about that? And so that they come to their own conclusion, but they're, it's pretty hard to, to decide after looking at this that it's okay to be eating in animals and animal products. So this is what we're doing. And we're having success everywhere. It's hard to measure it, but we know we're having success because of an, uh, an, an, anecdotes that we, uh, we hear. That's
1: absolutely brilliant. I yeah. love hearing that for uh, DVA, like, and it's it's been a a common thing in this series is talking about trying to create change, but you've got to start at the the systematic level. You know, you've got to start higher up, so then it trickles down. And it's so brilliant what you're doing and in getting into these countries because um, at the time of researching for this interview, um, good old Google uh was telling us, you know, it's between eight to ten percent of the world the entire world's population is Buddhist, you know, and that is just such a huge demographic. And if we can just start changing that, um we've had previous people say if we can get the world to I think it's eleven to fifteen percent to be vegan, then that's pretty much that's game over for the meat industry, yeah. you know, that that's um that's gonna be putting the right foot forward. So yeah, um Great. <laughs> Sorry, I've lost
3: my
2: point. Let me make a point then on your point. But, you know, thank you for saying all that. And, and, you know, they say 8 to 10%, and you, you might find that. I actually think it's under, uh, understated by quite a bit. So the numbers that we came up with, and we, and we really don't know, is that they're approximately, the best we could determine, there's approximately 1 billion Buddhists in the world. In order to get to 1 billion, you, you have the greater known is China. So there are two who know 250 million, 300 million, easy to find in China. But most people I've talked to, those that have had experience with, uh, in China and with Chinese Buddhism, say it's much greater than that. And if, if China, And so that's how you go from six or 700 million to one billion of the people in China, because it hasn't always been comfortable to openly practice religion in the country. Now it's probably better than it was uh, in, in the past. So people are a little bit reluctant to come out and, and to self-identify as Buddhists. But if you know, if if the sources that we're talking to are accurate. There's, there, there are over a half, mil, half a billion Chinese Buddhists, which drives a number over the billion mark worldwide. So someday we're getting into China, too. We're starting to have some connections there. And right now we're, we're, you know, we're waiting for an opportunity. We're in Sri Lanka, Vietnam, and Thailand recently. And those projects are, are really go- going well. Each one's completely different. We have a different uh, strategic plan in each place, but it's basically talking about this and using the monastic community and the leaders in, in those countries to uh, get our message out. And we, we stay back and encourage them and support them in, in ways in every way we can. That's
3: awesome. It's all about sowing those seeds, isn't it? However we can. And um, I think what well, Gareth was, uh, was kind of... Um, Aiming at was, you know, maybe maybe target audience is the wrong kind of word, but you know, DVA, you've got chapters all over the world, like you say, which is fantastic, and um, I think you know why your your chosen demographic, I suppose, is is obviously you know those who identify as Buddhist, although you don't have to be Buddhist to you know make a difference in this way, but um, it's understanding that that demographic, that that target audience, and seeing where and how we can connect to the best of our abilities. So, um, I mean, it might seem a bit of an obvious question, but is is that why you chose to focus on Buddhism in general? Because the numbers are just so huge. Yeah, thanks
2: for the question. Um, A couple yeah, that's a major reason that that, um, there are so many Buddhists in the world. One. Two, the Buddhist message is as clear and unequivocal as it could be. I mean, it, it, it's not only the message about not killing and not being part of the killing chain, but it's also who is to be protected. What's the circle of compassion? I mean, explicitly talks about sentient beings and it's in the first precept, uh, which is do not kill a living being or sentient being, is better, perhaps the better uh, translation. Sentient being is a being that can feel pain. So, you know, who would deny that a chicken and a fish and and, and a cow can feel pain? So, th- that's a great start. I mean, what an amazing teaching and 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 and, and the entire. Um, uh, compassion and non-harming teachings revolve around that, that all living beings that can feel pain are entitled to our compassion and not to be harmed by us. So that's the start, that there are so many Buddhists in the world, and also that, that I am identified as Buddhists. It's my spiritual path. And we put all those together, This and that there was no other – organization international organization there are organizations in each country but they, they're just in the country like there's you know there's vegetarian and vegan groups in different countries there's no other international organization um, of animal rights and buddhism we're the only one
1: it's so amazing what you guys are doing and yeah really really create helping to create this more compassionate world uh through your movement and yeah, I hope some of our viewers um, who are watching this, who maybe don't identify with a uh, faith, you know, they're not interested in religion or anything like that. I hope that they can still learn from this and look at what possible demographics that they have. You know, even if it's say chess players, they want better brain function, so go vegan for the better brain function and aim for that thing. Uh, you know, it's I, it's I just find it so wonderful when we're researching you and finding out about um, this and just just the huge scope of it. it it's fantastic. Now I understand um one of the first sort of yeah, well we've talked about it already slightly, um one of the first sort of areas organization worked on was um, Sri Lanka and also advocating for um major animal rights bills out there. Um and and it's a lot of a lot of the work they do is yeah, focused on these Buddhist um the, these Buddhist focused countries, you know, a place where it's a cultural presence. Um Oh, uh, sorry. I, I, I'm I'm just my my brain's
2: kind of half firing
0: at the moment.
2: <laughs> you're sitting on your couch and you're relaxing. So yeah. how, how about why don't you ask me about Sri, Sri Lanka project? that's, that's like, what I was trying to do. <laughs> but it, like I you said, you're you're absolutely right. This is the first one we did. Uh, Sri Lanka is an island nation off the southeastern coast of India. Uh, it, it has a population of about 21 million people. 15 million of the 21 million identify as Buddhists. And kind of an even distribution of Muslim, uh, Christian, and, uh, and Hindu. Uh, so it's a country where Buddhism is protected in the Constitution explicitly. Um, and it's, it's a country, it's, it's, it has the longest uh, uninterrupted Buddhist culture in the entire world. Thailand's not far behind, less than a hundred years, but Sri Lanka is number one. Uh, and so we had, I connected with uh, someone that started in on our website, became a member. And of course, anyone can become a member. You don't have to be Buddhist to become a member. It's just that you are uh, supporting what we're doing. You know, this is it. We're targeting a large percentage, whether it's, seven, eight, nine percent or 15 percent, as we think, of the world's population. Um, so Sri Lanka is a really good place because, first of all, they speak, lots of people there speak English, uh, which is very uh, handy. Don't have to get interpreters who go there and all. They have an absolutely um, uninterrupted Buddhist culture. Uh, and they also there's actually, in this Theravadin country, this country where a, lots of the, manas- the, the, the tradition of Theravada and Buddhism, kind of, eh, we can eat what we want if it's offered to us. So it's not Mahayana, but there's a lot, there are a lot of vegetarians in the country. It's so close to India, southern India, where there's a lot of vegetarianism. The Tamils ca- came over from, from India several centuries ago, and and many of them are vegetarian. So we, we find lots of really important uh, 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 monastics in each country, like the venerable Sobita, who's a huge uh, supporter of, of us and an animal rights activist. So this was good. And then also on our, our board of directors is Bhante Sati. So Bhante Sati is a uh, uh, Sri Lankan American monk, and he's, Been here for 20 years. He runs a big retreat center in Minnesota, and he's he's on our board of directors. And he's also, along with me, the coordinator, the co-coordinator of our Sri Lanka project. What we do there is we our main our main focus up till last month, and I'll tell you about the animal rights, animal welfare bill. uh, Our main focus is working with young people in the country. We have an open invitation because of our, we have political connections also, which I'll tell you about in a minute, which are wonderful. Uh, we work with the uh, the children at these Dhamma schools, D-H-A-M-M-A. So that's Dharma, but with uh, Pali Canon uh, uses the word Dharma, not Dharma. These Dhamma schools, these are Sunday schools, but they're not like Sunday schools in the West. Like I went to Sunday school, but you go for a couple hours, I mean, they actually have curriculum, they have textbooks, you go when you start when you're five or six years old, you continue till you're 16, and then you graduate, you have graduation and all. So that it's it's like, it's really important. 80% of the Buddhist children in the country go through the Dharma schools. So we have an open invitation to make presentations. Whenever we can, mutually um, acceptable times at these schools. We just uh, made a presentation on Saturday, the first one since the curfew uh, started for uh, for COVID-19. Uh, so this is this is what we're doing. We've done literally hundreds of these presentations. And we, we have, it's a PowerPoint presentation. We have a, a group of seven people that are doing this full-time. Supervisor Shanika, she's the, she's the supervisor. Six people that report to her, the regional coordinators, uh, spread out in the larger population centers in Sri Lanka. And we go in there and we talk to, to the kids and their teachers, and sometimes their parents, of course, we want to bring the adults in since the kids aren't buying their own food or cooking their own food. And we talk about this. And it's acceptable in Sri Lanka to show graphic footage. And we don't do a lot of that. But they will say, yeah, yeah, show them the film. And the kids just sit there. And I go, are you sure? Yeah, yeah. So we're doing that. And it, we're invited to do that. It, it, this is, this is the culture. It's not a Western culture. It's a culture of Sri Lanka. And this is making a huge impact. We also have, uh, we've made two uh, presentations at army posts to at least 1200 soldiers uh, each time. And they sit, they sit there and we ask at the beginning, how many people are uh, eating animals and animal products and, you know, Pretty much everyone raises their hand, and after we're asking them how many are going to be doing this in the future, very few people raise their hand. Now I understand they want to please us and all, but we think we're making a big impact in these places. We're getting really good questions, and we're and the speakers and the presenters here are speaking in Sinhala, the language of the of the Sri Lankan people. I went to one of the two of the two presentations. We're in industry. We're talking to university kids. and This is what we're doing. But then one other thing I want to tell you about, because a month ago, we've shifted, we've actually added, we haven't taken away from these presentations. We're doing on an average seven per weekend. So we have seven people doing these. Uh, There is, as you mentioned, an animal rights, animal welfare bill, which uh, speaks to confinement. It speaks to transportation, nothing about slaughter procedures, but that's a separate bill and a separate, and we're going to address that also. And we just, we just got a, a really nice grant, which is from a U.S. Operation Foundation, where we're going to be spending lots of time and some money in Sri Lanka promoting this. In the newspapers, in the um, uh, but billboards. Billboards are popular there. Uh, in uh, on television ads, uh, radio ads. People still listen to radio in, in the country, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we have one of uh, my, my close connections is the former. Uh, Speaker of the Parliament, uh, the Honorable Karu Jayasuriya, who has spoken. Every time I'm there, we, we have a personal meeting, and he's a, a big supporter of DVA, uh, and he, he won't, his party just lost, so he, we're hoping he'll be the minority leader. And we also have connections with, with the party in power. Uh, And all these people I mentioned, these leaders, the former speaker and the president, the president of the country is an ethical vegetarian, as is his entire family. So we're hopeful we can get this bill passed. And also it outlaws hunting in the country, it um, uh, outlaws or prohibits uh, fishing with live bait. Doesn't do anything for the for nets and all. But This is the significant stuff that's going on, and it makes a crime for, for harming animals. There was the last law in Sri Lanka was passed in 1907, and was the fine is 20 rupees, which is uh, about 11, 11 US cents, not dollars, 11 cents. Uh, and so now the penalties are 50,000 rupees to 100,000 rupees, and you can serve time in jail if you harm an animal. Of course, animals raised for slaughter are exempted from that because the, we, we, the original bill did not, but of course it's been added by the meat industry. But this bill does a lot. It's not perfect, but it does a lot, and we're going to get this passed to help as many animals as we can. That's
3: fantastic. I think you know, it's a great start and something a lot of countries could definitely learn from. So um I, you know so grateful for for everything that you're doing you're doing some some major league amazing things and and it's so great to have you in this series um, I have to ask you know along with with Buddhism naturally goes the whole mindfulness you know we've got uh, Buddhism compassion and and mindful you know being mindful it's one of the sort of buzzwords that gets bandied about at the moment in current society and um, you know personally we believe. Uh, you know, being mindful. Mindfulness is a, a practice that anyone can benefit hugely from, you know, regardless of your faith. Can you explain for our viewers your definition of mindfulness? What does it mean to be mindful?
2: Yeah, so great. Thanks for asking. Uh, so mindfulness is knowing what your experience is in the present moment. So right now I'm aware that, that uh, uh, of hearing. I can hear your voice. I can see both of you. I'm aware of the sounds coming from my voice, I'm aware of my, of my body, the weight of my body on this chair I'm sitting in, in my office. Uh, so that's what mindfulness is, it's very simple, just knowing your experience in the present moment, or being present is another way to say that. And so this, I'm happy you asked me this because it really connects, as you both can see, with uh, not harming animals not supporting the harm of animals and with everything we're trying to do in DVA, And it connects in this way. When, when we're mindful of where our food is coming from, when we're mindful of the process, we pay attention to that. We can see the suffering that is caused. And it's actually the first, the four, there's four noble truths, the key teaching of the Buddha. The first noble truth is the truth of suffering, which really means just to understand suffering which really means just to come in contact with and to experience suffering firsthand. You might hear it. You might see it. You might, it might happen to your body. So that, that's what the first noble truth is. So, I mean, just imagine what things are like for animals that go through this horrendous, horrific processing. words can't even describe. So that's what mindfulness is. And I think there's a huge need. And as, oh, as you say also, it's not, it, 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 well, the Buddha talked about this for sure. It's not, it has nothing. You can be mindful if you're not a Buddhist. It's, 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 it's It's, it's not, it, it, it's, it doesn't mean being a Buddhist to be mindful. It's a secular principle, which is, popular in, at least in the Western world, it's popular in the Eastern world because of the Buddhist teachings. Uh, so this is really important. I have, um uh, uh, Done teachings with different organizations in the U.S., for uh, example, uh, Mercy for Animals. I taught over there in their offices in Los Angeles, just up the road a bit, uh, and also in different uh, human rights organizations. That is to teach non sectarian meditation and mindfulness. Uh, we've done that also, myself and a friend of mine have taught at the uh, big AR conference, the Animal Rights Conference in the U.S. This the one this year has, of course, been cancelled, but uh, in 2017 and 2018. Uh, so we did that. There's a tremendous uh, need and people really thirsty for uh, teachings of meditation and mindfulness. Also, I, uh, mercy, mercy, not mercy for animals, but in defense of the animals. I've given uh, teach, teachings there, but lots of people are doing that. Lots of uh, uh, people who are somewhat skilled at at meditation and for me the the one of the keys to this is that we make better decisions when we're mindful so it doesn't really do a lot for me to when i'm talking to a teacher or to the manager of a retreat center to raise my voice and tell them how stupid they are for not for for serving animals and animal products i mean it's like the surest way to to um, to for them to continue with what, what they're doing. Instead, you have to have some way of 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 connecting with people. You know, I wasn't I wasn't born veg. I I I had understanding earlier in my life. I wasn't born vegan. I had an understanding 16 years ago. That, that I did not want to support suffering. And that by eating animal products, I was supporting suffering. So we can under, if we can understand where we came from, it's easier to, to relate to people. And this, this, the mindfulness gives us this, this space between what we're experiencing and then what we're going to do, between, the, between experience and decision-making. So, we can make better choices. So, it's not about us. It's not about, oh, I'm better because I'm vegan. It's about the animals that we want to see. And if we can keep that in mind and practice, as you both know, the Buddha's one of the five precepts is wise speech or right speech. So, not to speak harshly. Instead, just to, to talk to people, and sometimes, you know, sometimes we have to raise our voice. I mean, this is part of it. Sometimes there has to be conflict. It's, it, there's rarely change without conflict—not not not physical content, conflict, but saying, you know, I, I just don't think that's right. How can you justify that? This is wrong. What are you guys doing? I mean, do you see what? Okay. So, so th- I mean, this is all part of the advocacy. But it, but mindfulness is the is a big first step.
3: It's a great answer, and thank you for explaining. I mean, it's, it's you know, when we're first um, introduced to and, and made aware of what our species does to other sentient beings, you know, it, it's understandable for us to become angry. And, um, you know, I, I think in uh, a previous interview that I, I heard um, with you talking, you know, you were saying how staying with that anger not only causes suffering to yourself, you know, suffering is such a huge part of buddhism but but you know just understanding of of suffering you know when when you stay angry when you get angry you not only cause suffering to yourself because you know you're bringing you yourself a suffering but you're also if you get angry at other people you're putting suffering onto them but it's not of any benefit to the animals is it really being angry
2: uh... so and if this is this if I could. I mean, this is really important. And anger is the big one, right? Because as animal activists, we, we get angry, and there's not, you know, so not to be oh, I shouldn't be angry. No, it's it's okay. But the the um the way that the, uh, the, the Buddha would talk about this is to imbr- embrace the feeling of anger, but guard the reaction. So for sure, you have to know you're angry, to your point, when angry, before anything good can happen. So just now oh, I'm not angry, I'm not angry. Meanwhile, we're like enraged, the shoulders are tight, and the face is flushed. and then we're, I'm going to let them have it now. So that's not good for animals. It's, I mean, it's really not. So instead, it's understanding and feeling the anger in, in the mind, heart, and also the body, and then when we know we're angry, we can guard the response because it, do, it doesn't do any good to put it out there. And, of course, we're going we're to make mistakes because we're human. That's the way it is. But, but our goal should be to be able to communicate to people in a way that they can, can hear, can hear what we're, what we're saying. And, and, and we're planting the seeds. As frustrating as that is, you know, somebody, we may talk to some people in Sri Lanka or Vietnam or Thailand and, and, and change them on our Facebook, live presentations on our presentations in person and live on, on video camera to the, the top um, uh, temples or watts in that country. We make a difference because maybe they've heard something in the past. Maybe someone else planted a seed. And when we go in there, we can take it another step further. This is the, this is the way to do it. It takes a lot of patience. We're going to get angry. We're going to get frustrated. But... For the animals, we, we, we have to be able to communicate with people in a way that they can, they, can, they can hear
0: us. Thank you for listening to this interview. We hope you found it informative and entertaining. To learn more about Bob's work, check out DharmaVoicesForAnimals.org. Once again, be sure to follow us on social media platforms for future episodes. This has been Vegan FTA, Vegan for the Animals.